As we go on and uh, do our message, I, I first need to fuss at Steve a little bit. Steve was like reading my sermon, basically. So good job. No, I love that. I absolutely love it. More often than not, when, when people do communion talks to lead us in our time of communion, a lot of times God just shows up in a big way. And a lot of times they don't know what I was going to be speaking about, especially specifically. And it's so neat how God just puts those two messages together and just sort of whets our appetites or, or tacks a little something on the end and gives a different perspective. But this week has been a doozy. And if you know, we've been going through Colossians and we're in Colossians chapter one still. Colossians chapter one, you go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you want. But as Steve talked about, you know, life is tough sometimes and it's been mentioned a couple of different times in our service already. Life is difficult, isn't it? It really is. There's always somebody that's going through something more difficult than us. If we open up our eyes, we'll see that. But it doesn't make our trials any less when we're going through them. And I tell you, I've got something I want to share with you. And it's honestly one of my greatest shames. I, I'm not joking. I joke a lot, but I'm not joking. Um, I've been pretty open and honest with the fact that I have not always been a Christian. I was not born a preacher, believe it or not. They did not hand me a Bible out of the womb, and I did not start then. And I lived a lot of my life kind of against God in many ways. You know, I was a, I was a decent kid, but then I kind of got off the wrong path. And I've shared and been honest and open. You know, I may not share all the gory details of the mistakes that I've made, and I still make mistakes. But this is one that I honestly have never talked about much. And I hope you don't uh, laugh at me too hard, but it's okay if you do. But it marks me to this day, and this is going to sound crazy, but it's honestly the reason that I ended up running two marathons uh, a few years back. When I was in eighth grade, I grew up in a really rural area. We didn't have a lot of local youth sports and stuff like that. You know, you could drive several minutes and maybe go play uh, Little League Baseball and that was still even, you know, not a big deal where I was. And I just, I, well, I like baseball, I love sports, but it just wasn't my thing. I love basketball. And there was never really an opportunity to do like youth league basketball to play when you're a kid to play organized. So I just played all the time. Anytime I could pick up in my yard by myself with my friends, we'd go down to my elementary school and play outside on the park there. And man, I, I mean, I just loved it. And then when I was in eighth grade, I was from this really little school. We got the opportunity to play at a neighboring school about 20 minutes away and we could play on their school team with them. And so I was so excited. Eighth grade, getting ready to go into high school the next year. I was like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to play this year. Then I'm going to play in high school. And then I'm going to go to college. Then I'm going to be in the NBA, right? This was my plan. I go to practice, the very first, actually tryouts. And they said, we're not really going to cut anybody. We're going to see who we got. And, you know, if we have to, we'll cut somebody. But come on out. Go to the first night of tryouts, practice. And we get out there. And, you know, we're like stretching, doing all this kind of stuff. The coaches run a little bit behind. The coach comes in, and if you're not from Eastern North Carolina, this may not mean a whole lot to you, but the coach comes in with crab boots on. Anybody know what crab boots are? Um, they're these white rubber boots. You know, they got this little strong sole for, you know, working on a boat. And he comes in with crab boots on, and I'm like, okay, this is basketball, guy. Okay, this is basketball. You don't wear crab boots to basketball practice. And then he says, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to do monkey drills. Anybody know what monkey drills are? You may know it by a different name, but monkey drills are you go around the perimeter of the basketball court, around the outside edges of the basketball court, and you slap the floor like this. Oh, that's kind of The yeah. whole way. You go the whole way around the perimeter of the court as many times as the coach says. Bobby had never done no monkey drills. Excuse the poor grammar. 
But I had never done monkey drills, and I thought I was going to throw up from my toenails. I mean, you just you might think, oh, it's not that hard, but you do that. I mean, a, a basketball court is 94 feet long, and then you got the sides, which are 50 feet, and you're going around that whole perimeter over and over and over, what seemed like forever. And here's my greatest shame. I made it through practice. I went out. My mom was waiting for me, and I said, I ain't coming back. And I quit. And I, I want, y'all can laugh because I can laugh about it now, but it's, I hated that. I did it. I quit. And that's really, and so in my mind, for the rest of my life, most of my life, I was a quitter. That's what I thought. I didn't really quit a whole lot more things, but in my mind, I, I wish my mom, my mom beat me plenty of times. Excuse me. No, she didn't. Facebook. Excuse me. Listen. She disciplined me. Back then, it was different. But I wish she'd have done that then and said, no, you're going back. But for whatever reason, she didn't. It's not her fault. It's my fault. I quit. But that tore me up. And I, I, I carried that burden. I didn't at first. I was glad I didn't have to go do monkey drills and throw up, you know. And I thought I'd have known if I'd have thought. And the reason I said it made me do two marathons is because, and I've told some of y'all this before, if you've heard me in sermons maybe or just in person, the reason I did marathons was to prove to myself that I could do something extremely difficult and not quit. And I wanted to show my sons that. Once I had kids, that was like I wanted to show them that. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you quit eighth grade basketball. You quit eighth grade basketball because it was difficult. And I remember thinking that night, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up to play basketball. I've never seen Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson do monkey drills. They probably did. They probably did. I just didn't get to see it. I didn't see the struggle behind the success. And I'm here to tell you that life in Christ is going to be a struggle. But man, the success is worth it. The success is worth it. And the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Colossae, in, Coloss in Colossians chapter 1. And he is reminding this church, they're struggling with some false teaching. They're struggling with wondering if Jesus really is who he says he is, and therefore, do we need to follow him? They're struggling like all of us. They're struggling maybe with some persecution. They're struggling, they're struggling, they're struggling. Can you relate? They're struggling. And so he reminds this church, the challenge he says, this is my words, not Paul's, but I'm just summarizing the challenge he gives them is don't quit now. Hold on to Jesus. You know, if you've heard the theme of our sermon series, it's full. Because Colossians talks all about being full or the fullness of God, the fullness of you, the fullness of Christ and being full and complete. And the reason he says don't quit now, hold on to Jesus is because there's a lot at stake. And the first idea that we see in Colossians chapter one, verse 21 is this. Remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What Paul is saying is you needed, we, all of us, the Colossians and us too, needed reconciliation with God. We were enemies of and with God. We were against God. You may think, man, my life wasn't that bad. I didn't quit eighth grade basketball. Quitter. You know, you only say, I didn't do some of the things you did before you were a preacher. I, you know, I've had a pretty good life, but every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And every single one of us needed, and if we're not in Christ, we need reconciliation with God. We, and he gives three examples or three descriptions. It says in verse 21, he says, you were alienated. That literally means you were cut off from fellowship. You could not go back and forth between God. 
You know, you couldn't have a relationship with God. And before we came to Christ, we could not. And before Jesus came, none of us truly could in the sense that God wanted us to be able to, to be with him face to face and spend eternity with him. Even though the high priest could go into the presence of God one time every year, it was with what? Fear. It was with terror. And he knew that he could be struck down at any moment if he did anything wrong. But God intended for you and I to be face to face with him, not alienated, not cut off. He also says you were hostile. That word literally is talks about the idea of an enemy. You were an enemy of God. You weren't just in a disagreement with God, y'all. Y'all weren't besties that had a little tiff. You were enemies of God. I was an enemy of God before I came to Jesus. And I want to tell you this. I think all of us are probably on the same page. Facebook folks, I think you're on the same page too. You do not want to be an enemy of God. He'll let you live this life and he's not going to make you follow him. He's going to call him, call you to himself. He's going to give you nudges. He may allow you to stumble and fall so you'll hopefully look up and see him and, and come back to him. But he's not going to make you do it. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And if you haven't made him Lord before that, then that's the wrong time to be an enemy of God. So he said, you were alienated. You were hostile. And this is one other thing I want to say before I move on from that point. He says you were hostile in your minds. Listen to this. People don't have to see what you're doing to make you an enemy. What I mean is you can look good on the outside and still be an enemy of God on the inside. And that's mostly where it counts. You need to make sure that your heart and your mind is belonging to God. And then he says, lastly, you were doing evil deeds. So if you need any further clarification, he says you were alienated, you were hostile, you were doing evil deeds. You were completely apart from God and you needed to be reconciled. So he's saying in a sense, remember where you came from, Colossians. He's saying in a sense, remember where you came from, Movement Church and anybody who's here, anybody who's watching, remember where you came from. But here's the good news. But Jesus made it right. Look at verse 18. We're kind of flipping back a little bit because I wanted us to get that full, that bad news first and now give you the good news. Go back to verse 18. It says, He is the head of the body. We read a little bit of this last week. The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Here is the good news. You and I were, or if you're outside of Christ, are an enemy of God, but Jesus is the reconciler. Jesus is the one who brings it all together. Because I'm here to tell you that if you don't know, it's a daunting task to try to make up your relationship with you and God. Because once you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you can never do enough good to make Him love you. The beauty is, is He loves you in spite of your sin so much that He sent Jesus to be the reconciler, the one to bridge the gap and make the relationship whole again. Jesus is the reconciler. Jesus made you right. If you think about it, it's mind-blowing to think about the fact that the offended party is the one who made it right. And if you've been around church for a while or you grew up in church, you've heard that, so you're probably like, ah, it's no big deal. But put it in real life terms. If somebody who you considered a friend does you wrong, 
Who do you want to make the first move? You want them to make the first move, right? And sometimes people will never, ever make up because they wait for the other person to make the first move. But here we've got the offended party, not just the slap on the wrist. We spit in the eye of God. We crucified his son, and yet he sent that son to die to pay the price to bring us back together with him. The offended party made the first move and made it all right through peace by blood, by the blood of his cross. He did this. And something that we have to note here, and like I said, we talked about it a little bit more last week. But Jesus is the fullness of God. You know, think about the gravity of that, that God came down and made it right through death on the cross. If you were a Greek or a Roman, you never thought that God would come down. When God came down, it was not a good thing. All their many gods that they had, I mean, most of the mythologies come from a God coming down and taking somebody's wife and having a demigod with them, you know, or destroying everything. This was this was unheard of for God to come down and lay down his life to reconcile us. God came down and Paul was telling them, he said, you know, Jesus as a man, but he is God. Because there were people that weren't sure if Jesus was truly the fullness of God. And he's saying, look, Jesus came, the fullness of God. He was the mirror image like we talked about last week. He is God. And he came down and died on the cross for your sin and my sin. So we've got, remember where you came from. You were alienated. And then God made you right through Jesus. But then there's the next one. Remember who you are. Remember who you are, not who you used to be. We talked about that. Remember where you came from. Remember who you are. Look at verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, here's what reconciled looks like. Look at verse 22 again as he goes on. He says, you are holy. That word means set apart. That word means consecrated. It's a Greek word, hagios. And you, one of the ways you hear it in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew form, is one of the most stunning examples that I can think of in Isaiah, where he, where he sees the, he's in the temple and the whole place is shaking, it's filled with smoke, and he says, holy, holy, holy. You know, God is holy, but he made you and I that? That doesn't make sense to me. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. But he still did that for you and I. He makes us holy and set apart. Not because we have been good enough. Not because we got our act together. Not because we started thinking right. But because the grace of Jesus made us holy. So he said you are holy. That's what reconciliation looks like. You are blameless. That means literally like what you think it means. It means without fault. You cannot be blamed for your past. Isn't that good to know? That even though your life has been a shambles, you can look at Satan and say, be quiet in the name of Jesus. You can make no accusation against me by the power of Jesus' name. It doesn't matter what you say about me. It doesn't matter what my past looks like. It doesn't matter what my arrest record says. It doesn't matter what my history of life and the way I've treated my family and my friends looks like. I am blameless in Christ. Then he goes on and says another thing. He says very clearly, Above reproach before him. And that literally in the Greek gives the meaning you cannot be called to account. It doesn't make sense, y'all. It, it doesn't make sense. 
And I, I guarantee you that in this place, in this area, or watching at home, there are people who right now are saying, that sounds good, but it's not really true of me. That God still remembers what I've done. Because you still remember what you've done. But guess what? You're not God. You're not God. Quit trying to play God and quit trying to put God, your characteristics on God. God, in his mercy, is willing to not hold you accountable for what you've done. And he heaped it on Jesus. Now, does he want you to go about trying to build relationships and build bridges and be a reconciler? Absolutely. That's what we're going to talk about for the last part of this message. But what you have to understand is that's the place to be is reconciled to God that Paul is challenging the Colossians. He's saying, hold on to Jesus because Jesus has made you new and without blame. He's made you holy and he's made you above reproach. So that's the next idea. Everybody got this? Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Look at verse 23. It says, Colossians, right. Let me back up and read 22 just so it all flows in one idea. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is God. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul challenges them. He says, if you continue in your faith, then you have this great prize and reward that's waiting for you. Cling to Jesus with all you've got. When you stumble and you fall, you cling to Jesus. You run to Jesus because his grace is good. His grace doesn't just cover your past. His grace covers your future. But what do we tend to do? When we hurt someone, we try to avoid them, don't we? And we do the same thing with God. When we offend God again, many times we think there's no way that he can still love me. So we want to run away. We want to distance ourselves. So we distance ourselves from his people first, the church, because they're the ones with skin on. We can see, right? And then we distance ourselves as much as we think we can from God. But you can't hide from God. You can't run from God. But still, we try to push away that relationship. But Paul says, if you continue, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you've heard. He says three different words there. Look at this. He says, if you continue in the faith, stable. You know what? Where that word is also used in Greek? Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. If you don't know the reference, that's cool. But the story is one most of us probably know. Jesus tells a story about a foolish man and a wise man. Foolish man built his house upon the sand. Everybody know what I'm talking about? I'll, I'll teach you later if you don't know. But he talks about the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And when the rains came down and the floods came up, the house on the rock stood firm. That's the same word. If you want to be a wise man or woman, then you build your house on Jesus and you stand firm in him. Stable. Then he says steadfast as well. This in Greek literature, this was a word that a lot of times could be used as sedentary. Imagine yourself. Everybody got a, does everybody have a favorite chair? Okay. Um, does everybody have a, mo a really comfortable chair or maybe a couch that they like to lay on? And when you get a little bit of time when nobody's going to bother you, and if they do, you're going to hit them with a shovel or something. I'm just kidding. You're not like that. But you're like, this is my place. I'm going to get here. And maybe you like to watch TV. Maybe you Netflix binge. Maybe um, maybe you get on Facebook and, and just go all lost in Facebook. Or like my wife, Sherry, I'm going to tell on her right now. She's like, I don't do Facebook, but she likes Pinterest. 
Pinterest just sucks as much time, ladies, as, as Facebook does. <laughs> but you've got your spot and you've got your thing and you just get there. And if you can help it, you are immovable, right? You are sedentary. You're not going anywhere. You become one home with the couch, right? And that's sort of the picture. He's like, you need to be locked in, set down in stone with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Be stable, steadfast. And then one more time, not shifting from the hope of the gospel fixed in place. Let me ask you something. Do you think God is trying to get a point across to them and to us? He gives us three different ways to understand cling to Jesus, be strong, be, or excuse me, be stable, be steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. When we were at a little family trip a few weeks ago, we went to the mountains and we did some hiking and climbing. We had to climb down this kind of steep place to kind of drop down quite a few feet from rock to rock to get to this beautiful waterfall. And we had Andrew with us, of course, and this was his first time doing any real hiking, you know, and he's just a little over three years old. And we um, get in there, and I remember most of our boys not being too afraid of, of climbing down rocks or us carrying them climbing down rocks, but this child was different. I mean, he was like a leech stuck around our necks, and his legs would wrap around our midsection, whoever was holding him. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was Luke, Daniel, even my, my brother-in-law. And, I mean, he just clinged to him, and you try to, like, pass him to somebody? Uh-uh. No, no, he ain't going nowhere. He's like, and he's just stuck to you. And that's just such a good picture, right? He was sticking to who he trusted. And isn't that what we're supposed to do? I want you to clean. And, I, you know, people were getting, we were getting frustrated with him. We're like, dude, we're trying to get you to safety here. But, you know, it's not a perfect illustration. But he said, I don't care what you think about me. I'm clinging to this person. And that's what you and I need to do. I don't care what people think about me. I'm clinging to Jesus. Even if it makes me look foolish, I'm clinging to Jesus. And here's the last thing. The last thing. We still got a little bit. Still got a little bit. Don't get all excited yet. But it's worth it. Cling to Jesus while you hold out your other hand. Now, this seems contradictory. This seems contradictory. And if, yeah, if you're holding on to me as I'm holding on to you and you're hanging off the side of a building, then, yeah, you might not want to let go with both hands because I'm, I'm yoked. I'm pretty strong. That's, you know it's bad if nobody laughs because it's like <laughs> such a joke that nobody even laughs at it. All right. But, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I got country strength, you know, but you're going to want to use two hands if I'm trying to pull you up the side of a building and you could fall to your death. But metaphorically, spiritually speaking, Jesus is so strong, he can hold you with his pinky, right? What does it say here in the text? It says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's what Paul's saying. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now we proclaim, war, excuse me, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, I, I want to tell you, if you've ever read verse 24, or as you were reading along there, when you read that, it might bring a little bit of concern. 
Because it almost sounds like Paul is saying there's something missing or lacking in what Jesus did. But, and I've thought that too. And so I was really doing some deep study in, uh, a while back and I came to a better understanding of this. He uses a word, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we know Paul knows that Jesus was enough. I mean, he spent all Philippians chapter 2 and 3 basically talking about that. So I think we know that that's not what Paul was saying. But what Paul was saying is he uses a word that's not often used for the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. It's a Greek word that's used for his general sufferings, maybe through his life and his ministry. And so Paul's saying, I'm also willing to suffer. You know, Paul knew that he may go to his death, and he ultimately did. But he knew that his death was not a a death that paid for our sin. But any suffering he did was suffering that he did for and like Christ. He wanted to be like Christ as much as possible. So I think what Paul's saying right here is he is saying, I know that there's more suffering left for me in my body so that it benefits you, the church. Everybody get that? He's saying, I know I've got to suffer. So here's what I want you and I to know. There's going to be more suffering for you and me. And maybe you're thinking what I thought in eighth grade at basketball practice when I was about to throw up doing monkey drills. But that's not what I signed up for. Maybe you're thinking that. I didn't sign up for suffering. I signed up for for glory. And, and blessings and wealth and riches. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of people who claim to be preaching Jesus who tell you that that's what you get when you sign up to follow Jesus. But I hate to tell you that that's not always or even often the case. And if it is, praise God for that. His timing, His will, His knowledge is perfect. And so if He wants to bless you monetarily, He has done that to me. He will and He'll do it to you. But He also may call you to suffer. And Paul says, we're going to continue to suffer. You're not done suffering Here's what he says in Acts chapter, or what is said about him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. This is said to Ananias, who went and shared the gospel with, with Paul, healed him of his blindness, and then baptized him into Christ. It says in verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul was leaving a place of power and of privilege and he was just running things and he was respected by all the Jews and he said, now you're going to have to suffer for my name, but he was glad to do it. And that's what he's telling these Colossians. That's what he's telling you and I. I'm going to suffer, but I'm doing it because it's good for you. And here's what we need to understand. There's more people who need Jesus than just you and me. And I know I say that a lot, but I need to remind myself of that because I get comfortable And I don't like pain and I don't like discomfort. I don't like spiritual monkey drills, y'all. But if it helps the team, if it helps the people who are out there in the world who don't know Jesus, then I'm going to do them. I'm going to try my best and I'm going to fail sometimes. But the good news is, is my God is able to help me and pick me back up. And you and I often are called to suffer or sacrifice to make the word of God fully known, as it says in verse 25. Now, I want to tell you this. (laughs) At least right now, in our world and our climate, our suffering is nothing compared to what Paul went through. Paul was writing this letter from where? Prison. Jail. He was in chains. Most of us probably will never have to, but if we do, God give us the strength, and He will. But what we need to understand is that our sacrifices of our time, our energy, maybe our popularity, maybe some raise that we feel like we could get and we deserve, but we don't get because we're willing to put our family first and our church first, whatever the case may be, whatever you're called to suffer and sacrifice for, 
is to make the Word of God fully known. Here's something I want you to hear. And if you dozed off, wake up. People won't suffer for a surface faith. People won't suffer for a surface faith. If we as a church family only talk about a simple surface faith that doesn't stretch you, that doesn't challenge you, that doesn't include sacrifice and doesn't include suffering, then nobody's ever going to suffer. And so we won't truly be a body because we won't give up our time and our energy to help our brothers and sisters. We won't give up our time and our energy to help people who are outside of Christ, who are in need. If it's a surface faith, then people won't suffer for it. And if they don't see you suffering, they're not going to want any part of it because if I can just go and be myself and never change, then I'm just going to stay in bed on Sunday, right? And so if they see you suffering and struggling, the people that are out there searching are going to want part of what you've got because they see that it impacts people's lives. And so the question that you and I have to ask is, are you showing others there's something worth suffering for in following Jesus? Paul says, ultimately to us, you suffer to reveal the riches of the glory, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's wordy. But what he's saying is you suffer to show that there's something in us. Like Steve said, those broken vessels that we are, the light of Jesus shining through. That's what you suffer for so that people can see that God takes suffering, broken people and does amazing things with them. He changes lives and eternity. That's beautiful news, y'all, that we have the hope of glory. We've got the Holy Spirit inside of us. And I want to ask you, and I, I'm asking me, pointing right at myself. But does that get you excited? If I don't get excited, if you don't get excited about the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and that the hope of glory is in us, then maybe we don't quite know it. And maybe it's time for us to dig in and get to know it so we can have the joy that overcomes sorrow. And then he tells them yet another thing. He says, or he ultimately says this, how do we reveal the glory? How do we reveal the glory? Look at verse 28 again. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The first thing we do is we proclaim Jesus. Something we talk about from time to time at this church is Jesus changes everything. Do we literally believe that? Do we believe that Jesus changes everything or do we use Jesus as a last resort? I don't know how many times I've been guilty of having a situation in my life and I try to work at it, I try to fix it, I try to plan, I try to produce, and I try to do all this, and then I go and pray. And then God's like, see, I could have helped you a lot earlier, you know? I mean, he shows me. He's like, I could have helped you, and he puts it all together. Do you proclaim Jesus? Do you proclaim him in everything? Does he change everything for you so that you can help change everything for other people? Then he says also, warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. Are you giving something to somebody else? Now, right here, hold on, everybody listen, everybody listen, everybody listen, everybody listen. Because I know you, I know me, I know how we are. And you're going to say, I don't know enough. But imagine we're here, and it's not COVID times, and somebody's handing out these nice wrapped sandwiches, and you got a line going. They said, everybody line up, we're just going to pass them out. You know, so pass one. You get one, you pass it down the line. You get a sandwich, what do you do? Pass it to the person behind you. Get another sandwich, you pass it to the person behind you. You still end up with a sandwich. That's the way we need to consider our faith. What we get, we give. 
What we receive, we give. What little bit of knowledge we gain, let's pass it on. And then we'll always be filled up with more knowledge because that's going to drive us to want to give more. So tell people, warn people, and let them know that there's there's a promise that we're going to have to stand before God. But the good news is that Jesus is the reconciler. And he says the reason we do this, the way we reveal the glory, and the reason we do it is because we want to present everyone mature in Christ. That's a big challenge. We want to present everyone mature in Christ. Here's what I want us to think about. Let's not show up at heaven with a bunch of 50-year-old babies. Let's not have been Christians for 50 years by the time Jesus comes back or we die and show up and all be a bunch of babies. Because you know what? Babies are cute. Babies are adorable. But babies don't do anything for anybody else. They sure don't. They poop and they cry and they don't sleep. That's all they do. And they are adorable. And that's why you, you know, that's why you hold on to them, right? Because they're not giving a lot back in the relationship. So let's not all show up to heaven as 50-year-old babies crying and whining and pooping and peeing. I mean, I'm for real. Let's not show up to heaven that way. Babies don't look out for anybody else. Babies don't raise anybody else, do they? They don't. And so we are called to raise up other people and help them go from a baby to an adult Christian. And so we need to show up in heaven with a whole bunch of adults. We need to show up in heaven with a bunch of people with us. We don't want to show up to heaven alone, and that's what a baby does. Makes it by the grace of God, but doesn't bring anybody with him. So let's keep struggling in God's power. Let's keep struggling in God's power. If you feel like letting go of Jesus, don't. If you feel like letting go of Jesus, don't do it. That's why Paul, I believe, is saying cling to Jesus and keep holding out your hand. Hold on to Jesus with everything you got. He's strong enough to hold you. You're not going to slip. But reach out and hold out your hand to somebody else so that they can come along too. Hold on with all you've got to Him, but hold out your hand to other people. Now, I want to say this. I don't think it is, but just in case there's somebody listening or somebody here. If all this is news to you that you're going to be called to sacrifice and you're going to be called to suffer... I want to be the first to tell you, it's not easy, but it's worth it. If you follow Jesus, this is what you signed up for. We have nothing but choices in our world and our society today. You can get this plan, you can get this plan, you can get this plan. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. You give it all to him, you surrender your life down, you lay it all down, and you take on his life, that's the only option. You either are dead to yourself or you're alive to yourself. You can't be alive in Christ and alive in yourself. And so he makes it very clear it's worth it even though you may sacrifice. So don't be like me in 8th grade. Don't be like 8th grade Bobby. I miss my opportunities. I'm not one to brag on myself unless I'm completely joking. But I'm pretty good at basketball. Luke thinks he's better than me, but he's not. I had to say. But how many opportunities did I miss because I quit too early? How many opportunities did I get, did I miss that I could bring joy to teammates, to bring joy to, to fans, to bring joy to myself? Who knows, we might have gone defeated, not undefeated. We might have never won a game. I don't know. But there's something, I know now since there's something about being on a team, there's something about working together, there's something about helping your brothers and your sisters get up, and there's something about pushing them to do more. So don't be like 8th grade Bobby. Don't miss out on a chance for 8th grade basketball glory. 
because you don't want to do some monkey drills. And guess what? This is a little secret. Everybody lean in. Heaven's a whole lot better than eighth grade basketball glory. <laughs> the little junky trophy they would have given us if we won something is nothing compared to the glories of heaven and being with Jesus face to face and living in a place forever where there's no sin, there's no pain, there's no death, there's no anger, there's no racism, there's no hatred. All that will be gone and will be with God forever. And praise God, let us have as many people as possible with us. My coach was trying to build up our strength and our stamina by doing those monkey drills. We weren't going to do them all season. I just didn't stick out long enough to do it. And so maybe that's what Jesus is trying to do in you. Maybe he's trying to build some strength and some stamina so you can experience victory later on. And bring your team along with you. Heaven's a whole lot better than 8th grade basketball glory. So hang on to Jesus. Maybe you've let go a little bit. Maybe you're hanging on by just a finger and you're just slowly pulling your hand away. Cling to Jesus and grab somebody else. And if you want to talk about that today, we'd love to talk with you about it what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, to begin a new relationship with Him, or to come back to your relationship, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Let's leave here. Let's hang on. And let's hold out our hands.